Welcome to episode 196 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us for the last time in 2017. Uh, we are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, I have already done the interview uh, uh, did it, uh, on Friday with Elsa Kenya, uh, who is uh, adjunct fellow at the Center for New American Security, talking about artificial intelligence and uh, uh, China's military view. Uh, it's a fascinating discussion of uh, the slightly different view of uh, military AI that the People's Liberation Army has taken. I uh, uh, and uh, joining us for the news roundup, uh, Brian Ego, Egan, a Steptoe partner with our International Regulation and Compliance Practice, formerly State Department and National Security Council legal advisor. Brian, welcome. Thanks, Stuart. And uh, Nick Weaver, senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley and a lecturer in the Computer Science Department at UC Berkeley. Uh, uh, welcome, Nick. Thank you very much. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. And I checked Wikipedia and so far the ferocious uh, editor, edit checkers of Wikipedia have left that in. So uh, I trust our audience will not go uh, uh, suggesting it be taken out. Uh, let's get started. Uh, it's a, I have to say it feels like a week of largely warmed over news. Uh, we're hearing again because the uh, Wuzhen uh, conference covered uh, uh, both the period before and after the last uh, uh, podcast about uh, uh, China's internet conference, its philosophy of the internet uh, and sovereignty in cyberspace and what um, China is going to do with its infamous cybersecurity law. Um, uh, Brian, uh, what's new from the coverage, which was mostly uh, um, uh, about um, uh, Tim Cook and other uh, Silicon Valley uh, denizens uh, cuddling up to uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, what else came out of that uh, uh, Wuzhen conference? Well, it's it, I'd say two things. One is uh, it's just interesting that on the one hand, as you have U.S. leaders, as we've already heard about Tim Cook, the CEO of Google, executive from Facebook, uh, ironically enough, at the conference uh, President Xi himself did not appear. Uh, instead, a letter from President Xi was read by the head of the propaganda department of the Chinese Communist Party, which repeated the message of Chinese uh, sovereignty. Um, we have heard reports, though, on the cyber law of an interesting side discussion that took place between U.S. and other uh, non-Chinese companies and the person in charge of uh, implementing this law, apparently, uh, where he professed to take on board complaints from U.S. business and others about the very uncertain scope of the law, uh, particularly on the meaning of critical information infrastructure, which triggers many of the, uh, the requirements in the law. Uh, he said uh, reportedly, according to the Wall Street Journal, that uh, he would take some effort to narrow uh, the meaning of that term. Um, so the devil will be in the details, but that is an interesting development that actually may be uh, 
grain of a little bit of hope for U.S. tech companies. Yeah, and consistent with China's pattern of putting out ambiguous and really scary laws and then waiting to see how bad the uh, reaction is and ratcheting them back just a little to, to, to reduce the uh, the noise level of the reaction. Not getting rid of them, but saying, oh, yeah, we can accommodate you a little for now. Uh, yeah, that's right. And, and in reality, if the law was construed as broadly as some believe that it's written, it would be impossible to administer, I would imagine, even for the Chinese uh, in, in their massive infrastructure, uh, if, if these terms were uh, interpreted as broadly as they possibly could be. Yep, and I guess I, if I'm going to criticize Tim Cook, I should I should say that if you're having a cuddle fest or a cuddle competition with Xi Jinping, uh, Tim Cook just cannot uh, match the enthusiasm of the European Union and EU industry. Uh, 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 the, the president of the China EU, which is the um, business-led association, uh, went out of his way to say how wonderful it was to have uh, uh, Beijing uh, taking a big role in cooperation and coordination in cyberspace uh, and uh, recognizing that while there are many challenges ahead, uh, it's not possible to discuss future policy and regulation of the Internet without China, um, uh, which suggests to me that uh, the European Union uh, has it in mind that they can triangulate between Silicon Valley and um, Xi Jinping, uh, uh, and indeed, uh, maybe they can. Well, and I've been struck by the silence that we've seen both from the Trump administration and from the EU hierarchy on uh, the Xi message of sovereignty, uh, that this is a space where you've uh, traditionally seen the United States in particular take a very strong role in opposition to China, um, and uh, at least from what I've seen, the lack of uh, a strong statement from the U.S. is is striking. Yeah, I think that's right. I think they've they have decided they don't have top cover for an aggressive uh, uh, posture on this, and they're not sure uh, that taking a tough stand and then having either the president take it back or Xi Jinping say, yeah, no thanks, uh, uh, would make the uh, uh, the U.S. government look stronger. Okay. Um, <laughs> In that vein, it, it, it turns out that U.S. financial institutions are uh, preparing for cyber doomsday, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, uh, Brian, uh, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, so the Journal and Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg both reported on an initiative that started in late 2016 uh, that was sponsored by the Financial Services Information Sharing Analysis Center, uh, where banks have taken it on themselves to develop protocols for secure data storage, uh, where the banks themselves would store the data th- themselves, not a database, uh, but pursuant to shared protocols, uh, where the data could be recovered in the event of a cyber attack. Uh, and so this is, uh, I think, an interesting initiative uh, that was done not at the government's behest, although with the government's uh, understanding and encouragement, uh, and uh, now it's reported that up to, I believe, 70% of U.S. Uh, regular financial institution accounts are now covered by this uh, this doomsday model uh, that's uh, known as sheltered harbor. Um, and uh, so it's, I, I think it's an, it's an interesting space to watch. If you, we've heard financial institutions say more and more they want the government to do more in this space, uh, they've gone to some lengths to, to protect themselves in this space already. Yeah. 
That is interesting. Nick, do you think this will work? Uh, yes, because I think a better way of calling it is not a doomsday scenario, but preparing for mutual aid. So in the fire department, you went through a lot of effort to make sure that everybody's uh, trucks will work with everybody's fire hydrants so that a crew from here up in the Bay Area can get to L.A. and help put out these massive fires. And this seems to be basically the same thing. Define a standard data store representation so that if Institution A's computers are physically damaged, you can restore the backup on Institution B. This seems like a great idea. Yeah, uh, although it's nowhere near as sexy to talk about uh, um, fire hydrant standardization than doomsday. Uh, but I think you're right. Uh, uh, it is. Uh, uh, it's just about making sure that everybody is doing it more or less the same way, so that they can restore as necessary in a standardized way. And if uh, uh, one of them goes down, lots of them can help to uh, to bring back the uh, uh, the transactions. And also, it might even be a win-win-win and save money by allowing more other software infrastructure reuse between institutions. Very cool, although that probably creates monocultures for security uh, uh, flaws, but uh, we'll worry about that uh, uh, after we have our fire hydrants all uh, standardized. Uh, so, Nick, the, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about uh, is a piece that you put into Lawfare that uh, you had already, this is now the I told you so segment of uh, uh, the uh, show, Uh, um, you raised this last time we talked, which was basically a, a belief that Apple was not fully complying with the pen trap and intercept laws of the United States, which are backed by a CALEA requirement that uh, a, a people actually design their systems so that uh, it is possible to comply with those uh, uh, requirements. And you're, you have written a pretty long article uh, suggesting that um, Apple – it really has deliberately or at least completely uh, it, it has deliberately defied or it completely ignored the requirements for what a pen trap uh, uh, order is or it could be that the um, Apple has ignored and the feds haven't realized that um, it's um, basically a combination of things it's that Apple's pen register stuff that was reported on by The Intercept a year ago bugged me because it went, oh, my God, Apple's saving all this information, and I'm going, oh, God, this is not what a pen register is supposed to be. Um, And if Apple wants to say, we follow the laws in all the countries, well, how about following ours? And the other thing is, is the architecture for interception is something that's been highlighted for years in the tech community, and it wouldn't surprise me if it's the reason for Wyden's fairly cryptic comments about technical assistance requirements under FISA, because that would be how you would force the issue. Yeah, so if I remember um, your article correctly, um, the pen trap, a pen trap order, a pen register, trap and trace order says you must tell us every phone call that uh, this person receives uh, and 
from whom he receives it or to whom he makes the call uh, and typically how long and some details, technical details about it. Uh, and that what Apple appears to be sending people is something that says somebody thought about making a call. They looked up a number and we can't tell you whether they actually made it or not or how long it lasted or anything about it. Uh, is that pretty much what the problem is? Yes, but with one addition, that the pen prep, uh model has been extended to uh, Internet-type things. And so for email, it's the headers accept the subject line. For messenger services like Apple, it's time of message, size of message, type of message if appropriate, and sender-receiver information. And instead of providing that, Apple is only providing, hey, Alice looked up Bob's key information. This could be because Alice sent a single message. It could be because Alice had a long back and forth conversation, or it could be Alice was going to send a message to Bob and then decided against it. Well, that really wrecks the um, pen trap as a matter of evidence. Uh, if you wanted to say, well, uh, you know, you got a call from X and you immediately called Y and Y killed Z, uh, so we think you're uh, part of the conspiracy, um, the defendant just has to say, oh, yeah, I thought about calling Z, but then I decided not to. Uh, and yeah. there's no well, way to prove that's wrong. Yep. Okay, uh, and I, you know, the the, uh, the way in which intercepts would have to be carried out is they are all encrypted, but um, because Apple encrypts all of the messages to different devices with different keys and doesn't tell the uh, people who uh, are getting the benefit of that uh, encryption how many keys it has made to which devices, uh, it wouldn't be hard. Um, after receiving an intercept order for Apple to say, okay, we'll add one more key and it'll be the FBI's key so that decrypted communications will come to the FBI as well. Yep. Yep. Uh, well, uh, that will be, uh, that will be interesting. Uh, uh, although, you know, by pointing this out, you may simply be encouraging Apple to say, well, our next revision of the software should make it impossible for us to add an FBI key by perhaps telling people exactly how many keys and in whose name uh, have been generated for their their phone. So, uh, it's, Yay! Uh, that's what you wanted all along. I get it. Okay. I should have I been. want either. Okay. Basically, I want either Apple to support wiretapping or Apple to add key transparency so they, they can't support wiretapping. I really hate this idea of a Heisenberg backdoor. Got it. This is this was this was what you described it as last time. Yes. Okay. Uh, so uh, it, it, continuing in the I told you so uh, um, uh, uh, part of the of the podcast, uh, uh, the uh, uh, office of the director of national intelligence has announced that it's going to adopt unmasking rules, and it's going to adopt, among other things, the unmasking rule that I uh, have endorsed a couple of times on this show and in a lawfare po- uh, podcast, basically saying the Gates rules that require notification of Congress when we do particularly partisan um, or uh, 
where we take intelligence action that has a partisan risk to it uh, will include um, uh, intercepts that pick up the communications and mask or unmask the identity of transition officials during a presidential transition. Pretty modest uh, when you consider the uh, the likelihood that this is going to be a common feature. Uh, but by uh, adopting that, um, the ODNI has made it easier probably for Congress to adopt them, uh, a, a similar rule, but also less necessary. Um, a, and uh, uh, so I, I think it's highly likely that this is going to take effect both as a matter of uh, law and as a matter of ODNI uh, um, uh, policy. I, I'm astonished by uh, one story in which an anonymous uh, U.S. official familiar with the issue says, gee, if this executive order is implemented as written or worse, written into law, it's not only an infringement on the political independence of the intelligence community, but it will endanger our ability to work with our allies who may fear we've been drafted into a political party. This is a really partisan message, basically saying – Unmasking is entirely a Republican issue, and if you sign on to the concern about uh, unmasking as a possible partisan abuse, you are just signing up with one political party and are and a political party that every other uh, one of our allies hates. So you've uh, politicized the intelligence community. I weird uh, as a point of view, but luckily one that isn't likely to carry the day. All right. Here's the other uh, uh, topic I wanted to. Actually, let me let me take up one that I think is also pretty quickly dealt with. There's more story. I think Bleeping Computer had a story about how Germany is calling for backdoors, and maybe this means the end of encryption uh, or backdoors and encryption. Uh, this is a there is a German proposal. It hasn't been reduced to uh, uh, writing. It's floating around. I don't think it actually deals with encryption. Nick, I don't know if you looked at this, but uh, uh, the the claim that it's a, a backdoor is uh, maybe accurate, but it's probably a backdoor into things like car security to make sure that uh, cops can break into cars without having the car alarm go off. Uh, um, at least that's how I read it. Which um, I haven't read the proposal in detail, but um, if you provide a way for cops to break into cars, the crooks will find out. <laughs> That's true. Well, they already have. Brian, any thoughts on that one? Uh, it's it's hard to say without seeing the, the proposal in, in, in the flesh. Uh, it is interesting, though, that given that the European Commission has been so publicly opposed to anything that would create a backdoor, that you now have Germany and France... Uh, and potentially others on the national level, potentially introducing legislation that would do just that. Yeah, well, but that's the tip, the, the traditional divide. Uh, uh, Brussels doesn't have any real responsibilities for security, and uh, it shows in their policymaking. <coughs> okay, uh, Ethiopia um, has, according to a Citizen Lab report, been uh, – breaking into the communications of lots of its dissidents, no matter where they're located around the world, including in the United States, and even going after U.S. journalists, actually. That was kind of a bit of special pleading. What they meant by that is the U.S. journalist who's writing the story that uh, I, about Ethiopia breaking into people's computers. Uh, but still, um, a remarkable 
you know, I would have thought intrusion into U.S. sovereignty to go around uh, uh, taking action against American citizens in many cases uh, because the Ethiopian government doesn't like what they're saying. It's not the first time, actually. Um, so Bill Marzak, who's the researcher for uh, Citizen Lab, uh, just did his dissertation and, well, his uh, chair is right next to mine in the office here at Berkeley. Um, oh, look out, you know, because if his computer gets too close to yours, the uh, malware could jump the uh, uh, the air gaps. Oh, uh, we, we uh, normally Bill actually has to seek out malcode. So um, remember the uh, NSO Pegasus group stuff from about a year and a half ago? Yep. Um, where... Uh, you had the UAE uh, hacking people, um, and uh, that was actually captured on my girlfriend's old, old iPhone. Oh, I remember uh, that, yes. Uh, uh, and uh, you sort of deliberately uh, uh, sacrificed the machine in order to get uh, at the, uh, the malware. Yep. And so um, what has happened, actually, it's very interesting, is that Ethiopia has so done botched jobs because they did um, attacks like this before, either with Finn Fisher or Hacking Team, one of those guys. And basically, I think they've just been declared persona non grata with even the most of the cynical arms merchants. Because what happens when you sell to a repressive country like Ethiopia or some of the Middle Eastern countries? And you try to hack the wrong target, you get caught by Bill and company. Yep. And when Bill catches your malcode, this doesn't just hurt the repressive countries, it hurts all the legit investigations that might be using it. So if you want to sell to the FBI or DEA, you basically can't sell to these Middle Eastern idiots and Ethiopia and the like. Yeah. And Ethiopia has now been reduced to buying software from this uh, Israeli company, which is so bad that by default the web server keeps public logs. So you can just say, hey, web server, who are you spying on? Um, and so Bill was using that to find out who the victims were. And also, uh, they don't even have any exploits. So it relies entirely on social engineering to get people to install a fake Adobe update to Flash on their computer to infect them in the first place. And then when you add in the fact that the Ethiopians are reusing it like Keystone Cops, uh, the fish to Bill was sent in Comic Sans. <laughs> um, basically, they're reduced to dealing with idiots. And this is actually good for us. Because yeah. this means this is this is really what we want. We 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 wanted to make it hard for repressive regimes to get hold of this technology and use it against their citizens and ours. Um, and it looks as though that's what's happening with uh, Ethiopia. And it looks like this is a direct market consequence of um, the activities of group like Citizen Lab. That if you are if you want to hack drug dealers or the like, um, you don't get Bill. Bill will not care one bit. 
if you want to hack peaceful dissidents, Bill will care a lot. And if Bill catches your malcode, your malcode is burnt. Yeah, I, and look, Citizen Lab did, has done great work for 10 years, uh, since the, uh, uh, Ghost in the Net, uh, uh report. Uh, it, it, it was, uh, Absolutely eye-opening. Yeah. I do have one question, though, and, and the the, the, uh, the GhostNet uh, report uh, um, raised this, and I, I couldn't tell from reading the report because you wouldn't expect them to admit it, but it looked to me as though they might have broken in or at least found a way in that wasn't intended to some of these servers uh, in order to get at those logs. Am I um, reading too much into the report? Uh, yes. They did not need any password or anything to access the log files. That the log files were just publicly accessible on the server. Not publicly linked, but publicly accessible. And also, once you found the publicly accessible behavior on the Ethiopian server, you could scan the Internet for all servers like this and find their demo server. Yeah, of course, didn't the, didn't the U.S. government prosecute um, uh, that griefer for uh, accessing AT&T uh, 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 publicly accessible files? Uh, um, it's not clear that that's free from liability under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Um, we've actually never got successfully prosecuted under that. Ah. So what happened in the Weave case, um, an asshole who really should be in jail, but for different shit. <laughs> yes, exactly. I don't, I, unfortunately, uh, it is not illegal to be a complete jackass. Yeah, but he actually did do some stuff that really should have been prosecuted and was much more clean to prosecute, but it's too late now because he's hiding outside the country. Um but so what happened is he was convicted under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and it was appealed because there is no technical access control, really. Um, but the uh, appeals court never got to that oh, because they just right. decided on venue grounds. That's right. That's that, right. Okay. Well, I... Um, Brian, Nick, thank you very much uh, uh, for uh, your contribution. And now let's begin our interview with Elsa Kenya, uh, who is a uh, adjunct fellow with the Center for New American Security and who has written a, uh, a pretty eye-opening book or uh, report on uh, China's view of AI, autonomous weapons, and uh, uh, the uh, the next generation of warfare called Battlefield Singularity. Uh, uh, welcome, Elsa. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, so, you know, when American defense intellectuals or piece, uh, observers of the defense industry uh, talk about autonomous weapons and AI, uh, I pretty quickly you find yourself in a discussion about killer robots and Terminator and uh, maybe uh, uh, the uh, a War Games movie from the 80s. Uh, uh, and there's a distinct lack of enthusiasm uh, in most commentary uh, about this and a lot of doubt and worry. Um, that does not seem, reading your report, to be the response 
of Chinese uh, strategists and uh, defense intellectuals. Uh, uh, they seem to be um, reaching for AI in part because they think they have an opportunity and in part because they're afraid we'll get there first. Yes, I think certainly uh, to some degree the PLA or the people, Chinese People Liberation Army's focus on advancing military applications of AI is partly in response to the U.S. third offset strategy, which Chinese defense academics have clo- very closely tracked since its inception. Right, so they're, they're watching it more closely than we are, I yes, suspect. Yes, and they're watching, yes, they're watching it very closely and quite a bit more so than we are watching uh, their equivalent or parallel defense innovation initiatives. So I think certainly the... Uh, P- PLA is very sensitive to concerns that the U.S. could pull ahead in advancing these new capabilities and also, as, as you rightly noted, sees an opportunity given that the technological playing field between the U.S. and China is quite a bit more uh, level now given China's widely noted rise, so to speak, in AI, given the rapid advances in the quantity and quality of AI research happening in China, largely driven by the private sector but with opportunities to leverage some of these advances for military purposes, given China's pursuit of a national strategy of military civil fusion. So uh, what I was in, uh, the, the thing that I remember best from the, uh, uh, the report was a, a little vignette. Um, we all saw this, but I don't think it, it registered with us that uh, when Google uh, produced AlphaGo and said, okay, we can beat all the best chess players and Go is harder and uh, why don't we see if we can build a machine that uh, can learn to beat um, Go players, masters of, of Go. Um, and they did. Uh, and you know, in the West, everybody said, huh, what do you know? Another game falls. And it looks like the Chinese just freaked out uh, that it had a bigger impact, probably because they think of Go as a war game and as a sign of skill at warfare and as teaching uh, things about warfare. Uh, and to have a machine suddenly able to beat everybody opened their eyes to the possibilities and the risks in this area. Yes, clearly. I think it's fair to say that AlphaGo was a Sputnik moment for China in a sense, uh, both for uh, Chinese leadership at the highest levels to uh, Xi Jinping himself, who has talked on a number of occasions about the strategic importance of AI and the AI revolution, and also for military leaders who, as you noted, saw AlphaGo uh, in defense terms as an indication that AI was able to engage in complex strategizing, not unlike that required for a by a commander in warfare. And clearly, Go is not war, and yet Chinese defense academics have noted the parallels in terms of the level of complexity, the stratagems involved. And uh, there also seems to be perhaps a degree of uh, mistaken mirror imaging there in that they saw this as, to some degree, indi- indicating DOD capabilities in this regard, even though this was purely a commercial endeavor from a U.S. perspective. So, so I, that's the other thing that's interesting about this. This has to be the first time in modern history that an arms race has been kicked off by a private company who won't even sell their products to uh, the Defense Department uh, uh, and is now has now essentially started an arms race with the largest uh, country on the planet. Perhaps. I certainly hope that this won't turn out to be an arms race, though I think there are serious reasons for concern that... U.S.-China military and strategic competition in AI is is intensifying, and I think certainly there are some clear structural uh, advantages that China may have in leveraging 
rapid commercial advances led by the private sector for military purposes, given a strategic framework of military-civil fusion, and sometimes they mirror image that when they're looking back at the U.S. and see closer linkages than there sometimes may be between our commercial and advances and military initiatives. So the, I, there, there is enormous amount of Chinese mirror imaging going on, I, I think. Uh, um, and uh, if I remember, you track it back to the hangover from the first Gulf War when um, no one knew how that was going to turn out. Uh, but if you were looking for a country that had a military doctrine and a uh, an approach to uh, uh, to warfare that was similar to the PLAs, you would have picked Saddam Hussein. Uh, lots and lots of armor and uh, overwhelm people with numbers was the uh, was the doctrine. And to see that taken apart, I won't say systematically, it was just taken apart completely and conclusively in a matter of hours uh, by an uh, outnumbered U.S. force that had net-centric capabilities was um, transformative for the PLA, uh, which had been relying on what uh, Jim Lewis, who's a frequent guest here, uh, once described, uh, he, he described their army as the uh, world's largest outdoor military museum. Uh, and they've completely tossed that overboard and um, digitized, net-centrized their entire military, haven't they? Yes, I think certainly that was a very clear wake-up call for the PLA and catalyzed their military modernization agenda, including the development of asymmetric capabilities that tried to target perceived vulnerabilities in U.S. ways of warfare, including developing cyber and electronic warfare capabilities that could undermine U.S. battle networks, and as well as t um, recognizing that from their perspective, the U.S. is a no-satellites, no-fight military that is heavily dependent upon space. So I think certainly you can say that that, that particular moment was a catalyst. So they're, they're, in addition to imitating what we were doing to, to give more capability to their individual uh, units, they said, well, what makes the U.S. so formidable as a net-centric warrior? And it was space. It was uh, uh, informatization of uh, the soldier and all of the equipment uh, and, of course, looming large in their imagination, all those carriers. Uh, yes. And they have built a military that is like ours and also equipped to attack the places where they think we have major advantages still. Indeed, and I think certain aspects of that fairly asymmetric approach to military modernization will carry over into how they think about leveraging AI for ah, military applications. Okay. So they're going to they're gonna want to do everything we're doing and also ask the question, what's the best way to uh, flip the, the strengths that the U.S. is developing in this third offset uh, and turn them into weaknesses? Yes, I thought one telling uh, example of this perhaps was when I was visiting the military museum in Beijing uh, this past summer. I noticed a small depiction of several drone swarms attacking an aircraft carrier. So I think certainly there is a sense that, and there's been this strange swarm war of sorts already happening between the U.S. and China, where the Department of Defense has demonstrated a couple of drone swarms and a company in the Chinese defense industry is not too long after followed up with a slightly larger swarm, which Chinese official media noted beat the prior U.S. record. And certainly this is not a context in which size necessarily matters quite that much relative to the sophistication of the algorithms involved, but certainly seem to be a pretty clear message that we are, we are also pursuing swarms and can 
perhaps overtake the U.S. in terms of their or certainly seeking to do so in terms of their development and operationalization. So uh, uh, before we get into how they imagine they will use AI, and it's not so different from what we imagine, uh, I wanted to ask quickly about the third offset, which, as I said, we haven't paid any attention to at all unless you're a military contractor. Uh, but this is, I guess, the Pentagon's view that uh, their first offset was nukes, the duh, uh, and it made U.S. military uh, qualitatively different from the rest of the world. And the second offset was informatization and stealth and a variety of other uh, uh, investments that were made beginning in the 70s. Uh, uh, the, uh, and then they see the world catching up with those capabilities, and the Pentagon is saying, well, we want a third offset, and AI is part of what they think will be the third offset. Um, my first thought there is um, we, we may have a third revolution in military technology, but it ain't going to be an offset if China is following this fast behind or maybe ahead. Yes, I think that will be the challenge, and that seems to be where Chinese strategists see an opportunity, that they are concerned that if the U.S. were to succeed in in the third offset, they, the U.S. military could achieve a major advantage relative to China, placing them again in the same position of inferiority where they found themselves quite clearly after the Gulf War. So I think that uh, this, however, as you, as you rightly noted, this is quite a different picture when you look at the technological balance between the U.S. and China and how rapidly China is emerging as an AI superpower and the scope and scale of Chinese government ambitions in seeking to lead the world in AI by 2030. And I think... Which is 13 years from now, right? It is um, closer in time than, um, say, 9-11 was. Uh, uh, So it is uh, a, a... very near um, uh, uh, near term event yes, and I think certainly it remains to be seen how successfully uh, the Chinese government, in partnership with and in some cases led by the private sector, will be able to implement the this agenda. but I think certainly it, it it's worth taking seriously the possibility that China could take the lead, whatever taking the lead means in a technology that is very complex and multifaceted in the Techniques and applications associated with it. Uh, so, what do, what do we? Uh, when you read the, uh, the, you've been reading the Chinese military doctrine in this area, and their, or their at least their uh, um, strategizing and intellectual discussions of how one would use AI. Where do you, do you see it being used, or where are they seeing it being used? Uh, I'm kind of assuming. For sure, autonomous weapons and swarms of autonomous weapons, that's sort of easy. Everybody can see, well, if I have an autonomous weapon, having 20 is even better, especially mm-hmm. if they're all talking to each other. Um, so that's that's clearly one thing. Um, what else is is the, a goal for the use of these technologies? So I think first it's worth uh, introducing a couple of caveats that uh, – the Chinese military does not yet have an official or formalized strategy or doctrine. Okay. A lot of these debates within the PLA are ongoing, as they are within the U.S. It's not a monolithic organization, right. and there there are those who are uh, expressing a great deal of enthusiasm for the perhaps transformative potential of AI, and those who are 
uh, arguing for a cooler approach and a more critical look beyond the hype at what the potential of this in a military context actually is. So I think, okay. yeah, so the tricky thing about uh, finishing, so to speak, this report is that these debates are happening and evolving in real time, both in China and in the, and in the U.S. So I see this at, at best as a snapshot of some of the trends that are starting to emerge. And the trends, if, if, if I read the report right, are they see opportunity, one in um, uh, organizing autonomous weapons into mm-hmm. larger groups that can uh, respond strategically to events on the battlefield. Uh, second, um, assisting or taking over, in the most extreme case, uh, um, strategic command decisions about, at various unit uh, uh, sizes, um, so that the uh, the commander actually mm-hmm. is either either is AI or is getting help from AI. And the last is in cyber attacks. Is that, is that fair about the, the places where they think AI is most likely to come uh, uh, to their assistance? So I think if you go off of the uh, analogy that AI could be like electricity, I think it's clear that it will supercharge capabilities in a military context for quite a number of different applications. And some of them will be less exciting, so to speak, than notional killer robots or autonomous weapons. Some could seem comparatively mundane. So what the PLA, and certainly not unique in this regard, given that the U.S. and a number of other militaries are pursuing similar lines of effort, but the PLA does seem to be working on introducing greater degrees of autonomy and intelligence, so to speak, into unmanned systems, including unmanned aerial vehicles, unmanned ground vehicles, and unmanned underwater vehicles. Uh, The use of AI to enhance uh, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, such as the development of algorithms that could identify a ship from a massive amount of satellite imagery or or, or data fusion. Here, uh, submarines, uh, I I see there have been some real advances in AI ability to to use passive sonar, for example. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I think certainly in, in the context of intelligence and analysis, there will be Quite broad scope for the and use that's of AI easy, there. right? Why yeah. not, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And it fits very well with the kinds of things that are, have commercial mm-hmm. value uh, for companies that are also doing analytic work with their AI. Yes, and in some cases, uh, given companies are also working on similar a- analytic capabilities, this is something where it's easier to transfer over from a private sector context. And I think also, a little bit more uniquely, the PLA seems to be quite focused on AI and wargaming simulations and even training. So the development of an intelligent blue force, so they're equivalent of a red team, to, yeah, I guess, yeah, I, which I, to I, test I, their forces. I, I did notice that. I and I, I, I immediately said, yes, of course, in, in, in uh, China, the red team has got to be the good guys. Yes, of course. And also, uh, given that the PLA lacks combat experience, using, for instance, a virtual or augmented reality to enhance the realism and sophistication of training could also be... Uh, quite quite appealing to them, right. and 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 it's a way of testing to see whether in fact uh, AI as a commander works or not uh, when up against human uh, uh, adversaries who may do the unpredictable. Yes, and speaking of war games, there actually appeared to be a uh, war gaming competition recently in which an AI developed by the Chinese Academy of Sciences did uh, defeat human competitors. So certainly, at least in a, at least in that context. Uh, as an AlphaGo, AI is starting to be able to strategize and com- compete quite effectively with human intelligence. And right. Now, which is hardly a surprise. Uh, and yet, 
deeply disturbing because it means that uh, uh, if you can develop a particularly good battlefield commander AI, um, it's going to be very hard for even the best humans to fight it, which means that uh, whoever goes up against somebody who has developed this is going to have to have their own AI, and it'll be AI versus AI. I think we're probably quite a ways away from that in terms of technological feasibility, but certainly uh, the Joint Staff Department, the high-level command organ for the PLA, has called for making use of the tremendous potential of AI in planning and command decision-making. So certainly there seems to be a focus on that potential and on developing systems that might, at some point in the future, be able to either support commanders on the battlefield or perhaps in some cases be taking on a more direct role in strategizing and Certainly, I think it remains to be seen how these debates will play out within the PLA, but there are those who are suggesting that there, and that's the title of my report, that there could be a point on the future battlefield at which human cognition cannot fully keep pace with the rapid tempo of operations, which could result in a singularity of sorts, at which point humans can no longer be quite as much on the front lines and instead would be more uh, to the rear of the battlefield and more of a supervisory role, perhaps still having control, yet not as directly. Well, that sounds like hogwash. But what does it mean to have control if you're not if you're not making the decisions. I, I, that, that sounds like, like you know, uh, happy talk. It uh, doesn't sound like real computer science. Yeah, that, that's the question of what, what does control mean in this context? What does having a human in the loop mean when more and more aspects of these complex systems will be reliant upon different AI techniques and applications? And I think I've heard analogies to the application of the notion of mission command in this context, that Hypothetically, at some point in the future, you could have systems that are under the supervisory control in a sense of a human commander, yet have greater greater degrees of discretion, so to speak, in making more tactical and perhaps even operational level decisions. So a lot of this does sound, in a sense, like science fiction, but I think it's notable that there that there are reasonably high-level folks within the Chinese military who are starting to think uh, seemingly fairly seriously about this. Are they as worried as our Pentagon is about um, the ethics of uh, uh, allowing AI to make these decisions, uh, the uh, international law of allowing weapons to go autonomous? Uh, so far, I've seen a less prevalent discussion of these issues by Chinese military and defense-focused academics. That doesn't mean it's not something they're thinking about or concerned with, but these concerns seem to be somewhat less at the forefront in their approach. And if you look at China's approach to international law in other contexts, it's sometimes characterized more as a legal warfare-style attempt to exploit it to right. achieve strategic so, objectives rather than seeing it as a constraint. So they so would be glad to, to go to the UN and talk about the ethics of this and suggest a whole bunch of international law restrictions on autonomous weapons because they figure they can ignore it and we won't. Perhaps. I think it remains to be seen. Uh, the, certainly there ha does seem to be initial Chinese diplomatic engagement in some of the discussions that are starting to take place through the group of government experts on lethal autonomous weapons. I think given that China's uh, newer next generation AI development plan calls for the country to take a greater role in AI governance, we could see China qu quite actively getting involved diplomatically on some of the legal and ethical issues involved. But I think it remains to be seen how the PLA will engage with or be constrained by some of these questions. I'm, I'm not saying that the PLA would di entirely disregard international law. There have been those who have argued that it should be applied, that these principles should be applied to future autonomous systems, but I think it, it's still an open question. 
okay. in certain respects. So you, you, there was one thing in your report, I'm going to sort of bring this to a close, where you talked about the difference between U.S. and Chinese cognitive styles, and, and you had an example of uh, what you thought was a Russian cognitive style with respect to new technology and warfare that I completely didn't understand. So I thought I'd give you a chance to explain that for our listeners. Uh, sure. So that might have been an excessively academic point in an otherwise more analytical paper. But I, what the overarching idea I was trying to get, get at is that uh, Chinese military thinkers look at military science and warfare differently than those within the U.S. They approach it from a different angle in terms of their strategic culture, in terms of the ways that they're trained to think about warfare and the different theoretical approaches that they apply. So in the case of the prior revolution in military affairs, and with a credit to Dima Adamski's work here, looking at the Russian military, uh, say that Russia was the first to come up with concepts like the reconnaissance strike complex, but but the U.S. was what the is first a, to What is a reconnaissance strike complex? Is that where you fly over with a drone, you watch for people, and then you shoot them? Yeah, sort of integration of reconnaissance and strike. Okay. Or, so a lot of the concepts that the U.S. ended up implementing through the RMA – to some degree, we actually informed. borrowed from the Russians. Yes, so I think there's an interesting, okay. there's a little, little bit of an obscure but interesting historical note there. So okay, I think and so we could, we could, it, 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 even if we think we're leading in the technology, we should not be surprised to discover to our horror that the Chinese have looked at what we're doing and recombined the things that we're using in ways we never imagined but that are quite effective. Yes, and I think that remains to be seen. So if the U.S. and China are close to neck and neck in terms of the technology, then the decisive factor could be which military has the organizational capacity to implement and actualize these applications and which is able to think more creatively about the appropriate operational concepts and organizational structures that can most effectively make use of it. So I think that was almost more of a question than an answer in my paper. Than yeah, yeah but I th- you know, if you're looking for, if you're worried about strategic surprise or yeah. at least tactical surprise, this is a, a source of it. Yes. And I think there, I think as with many things in my research, I will say that it's Certainly all of this will continue to evolve going forward in ways that could be quite fascinating, but there could be a divergence between U.S. and Chinese thinking and approaches to the use of AI in conflict, and they could develop very different concepts, and I think it uh, will remain to be seen, which is the which is the first to develop the killer app, so to speak, for AI and military Literally. Yes. <laughs> okay, so uh, last question. Uh, um, you're what? Two years out of college? Three? I'm uh, fairly young to be doing the work that I'm trying to do. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not dissing you. I just I, I want to say, how did you um, decide this is what you wanted to do and um, develop uh, the chutzpah to just go out and do it? I'm not uh, – and so I've had a longstanding fascination with technology and innovation – and my background and focus had primarily been on Chinese foreign policy, Chinese strategy, and and engaging in analysis of the Chinese military. So for me, this was partly in response to lo- looking at debates on the third offset in the U.S. and following with interest these questions of U.S. defense innovation and starting to wonder how will China respond and 
given China's advances in a number of these same technologies, is the notion of offsetting China at the technological level perhaps problematic in that regard? So for me, this was sort of came out of my curiosity and fascination with a number of these issues, and the hope. Well, and one of your comparative advantages is you read Chinese, right? Uh, uh, did you teach yourself Chinese so you could do this kind of work, or was, was that just a lucky uh, combination? I started studying Chinese、uh, due to a fascination with the country and its significance in a rapidly changing world order. And I've lived in China for about a, about a year. I read quite a bit more comfortably than I speak, which I do with an awkward accent. But I、right. think certainly、uh, I've tried to look at. Chinese language open sources entirely information that is freely available in order to hopefully illuminate some emerging trends that I think could be quite consequential to U.S. competitive strategy going forward. Because I think certainly Chinese defense academics and strategists are closely tracking what the U.S. is doing, and I think it's important both to avoid misperception and mirror imaging, and hopefully to avoid thinking too much in terms of worst-case scenarios that we have a better understanding of how. How the Chinese military is thinking about and pursuing a number of these d- different applications of AI. No, it's it's very impressive.、Uh, I'm looking forward, to,、uh, well, for as long as I'm around, to、uh, following your、uh, your career、uh, in, in this field because you've got a long one ahead of you. Uh, uh, so, uh, Elsa uh, uh, Kenya. Uh, uh, thanks very much for uh, uh, coming. Uh, uh, do you have any events reports? Appearances that you want to let the audience know about, in case they want to uh, uh, come and ask you questions.、Mm, so I do have a, hopefully another report coming out, perhaps、Excellent. in early 2018, about another dimension of emerging technology and defense innovation that I'm also fascinated with, which would look at quantum technologies. So quantum computing, communications, as well as quantum sensing and metrology, and their potential impact in a military context. Well, so you you absolutely have to read, listen to the two recent podcasts.、Uh, one uh, with uh, David Ignatius, the quantum spy. If you haven't read that, it's a uh, uh, it's a China develops uh, and U.S. develops uh, uh, quantum uh, uh, computing. Tools for espionage.、Uh, a lot of discussion of uh, uh, U.S.-China competition, and then uh, a uh, an interview with Rob Reed,、uh, who uh, wrote a,、um, a tongue-in-cheek、uh, science fiction book about the possibility that the first truly successful, self-conscious, and self-improving AI will be developed by a Facebook clone, and that it will. Uh, prevail in future conflicts basically by ensuring that their competitors are too busy hooking up to actually fight the war. I, a, a,、um, uh, the, the AI develops the personality of a eighth-grade me, mean girl、uh, and starts. Uh, destroying people with,、um, you know, Twitter storms. Uh, uh, so uh,、um, I will be sure to check that out. You will, you will, you will enjoy it.、Uh, he、uh, he takes everything to uh, uh, amusing extremes.、Um, so、uh, Elsa Kenya, thank you very much.、Uh, this has been episode 196 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We are going on hiatus. It's Christmas. Uh, uh, stop listening to podcasts and go spend time with your family.、Uh, but if you have Um, while uh, uh, spending time with your family, you come up with an idea for someone who ought to be a guest interviewee. Just send us a note at、uh, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe dot com, and if we 
put them on the show. We'll give you one of our highly coveted Cyber Law podcast mugs, which uh, Elsa's going to get today. Uh, uh, and uh, after uh, New Year's, uh, uh, tune back in uh, and join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.